Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I am joined by guest Erica Goody. Erica, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Before we get started, could you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a certified public accountant and I own a boutique accounting firm that specializes in helping coaches and consultants with bookkeeping and CFO services. Killer. And one of the wonderful things about you is that you believe in content marketing <laughs> and you have a delightful mailing list. Uh, dear listener, I, if it doesn't sound exciting to be on the mailing list of a CPA, you're wrong. It's great. It's hilarious and useful. And uh, it's it's one of my favorite mailing lists, to be honest. Um, so one of the messages that I received was, I think you, you were at a convention <laughs> for CPAs in Idaho or some said that the name was hilariously dull. <laughs> it, it was the Associated Taxpayers of Idaho conference. And I tried to say that really dull too. <laughs> and you just, uh, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was kind of like the, one of the speakers pulled the audience and said, you know, are we currently in a recession? Are we going to be in a reception or have we dodged that bullet? And you know, and the, the vote was a little bit dismal and, and the speaker was like, and you're the most optimistic bunch I've spoken to this week, right? Right. So for folks who listen to this show who are primarily solo operators, they are a company of one and uh, maybe some small firms in there too. How should folks like that, particularly the soloists, how should they be thinking about the economic climate coming up and what they can do to not just survive, but thrive, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, um, anytime you use the adjective hilarious to describe a CPA's email list, uh, it's the greatest compliment you you could give me. So thank you. <laughs> um, but in terms of the economic climate, I think a we just the media, the mass media is just great at fear mongering headlines. And I think when you look around at your peers, everybody kind of tenses up and we think we should tense up too. And it's just a knee-jerk reaction that's that's not necessary because I think the a recession, potentially or currently, is always going to hit different companies, different people in different ways. Like we saw in COVID, there were plenty of companies that thrived through COVID. Now, we didn't call that a recession, um, but the economy for sure retracted in a lot of places. And again, it thrived in other places. And I think anytime you go into a huge um, boom or bust in the economy, right? When the economy thrives, it doesn't mean everybody's thriving. It just means certain industries are. And so before we jump the gun and just assume we're all doomed, if there's a recession coming, I think we really have to see like how A, is that currently affecting my business today, because we've already seen inflation raise way faster than we have in the past few quarters. So it's, it's already, the effects of it are already taking place. And so we can kind of look at what's happened to our business in the past few months and start to judge, is that an indicator for what will happen in the next few quarters? Yeah. I mean, the last time, the, geez, I'm old enough to have gone through a few recessions at this point. Uh, and I, just to pile on your point there. I remember in the 2008, the, the housing crisis, I guess, I had some clients that were just just annihilated immediately and others that were just not affected at all. You know, they were in different sectors and it was, uh, and it, it, and then other, and then it, I think even farther down the line, 
it's almost like the supply chain in a sense, like where where the problem hits in a particular spot and then it kind of like echoes out from there, or radiates out from there and can hit other things later, maybe not hit. It, it just It's just weird. But you're right. Like the media just, they have a business model that rewards clicks. So they're going to talk about things that trigger you to click on stuff. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Yeah. And so a knee-jerk reaction is almost definitely not the right thing to do. Um, but let's say, let's say there were some, let's say they, someone listening to the show takes your advice and looks back and says, like, how has this actually affected me so far? What are some, let's get this stuff out of the way first. What are some things that you might recommend for someone to do if they are in a, if they are appropriately in a battening down the hatches mode or like they think, okay, there is definitely a storm coming to hit me in terms of a conservative approach, like what sorts of things might they want to do to weather that, that they're under their control? Yeah. I think always, if you see your sales are going to get affected, if you see where that's happening, I think your first option is always cost cutting like any business, whether you're Walmart or, you know, in your basement running a consulting, you know, company virtually. I think anytime you can go through and and scrub your expenses and really see what's necessary, what have you been paying for in the terms of subscriptions? What have you been paying for that's not really bringing you value in your business? Um, and accountants, I would say specifically, are notorious for hating marketing spend. And anytime uh, in my big corporate days, anytime there would be cost cutting coming down, they'd be like, and I used to be in charge of marketing, the budget for marketing, slash marketing, get rid of all that wasted dollars, <laughs> which which just somebody who doesn't understand the ROI on marketing, of course, will just go in and slash slash all the, the quote useless spend. And so even as you're, um, all that to say, even as you're going through your cost cutting measures, make sure you're not cutting costs where revenue is being driven by you would you would hate to be like oh this podcast that i just started is so expensive i'm going to stop doing the podcast right when really that's the way people find you you don't want to cut costs that are also going to cut your sales further now maybe you can take podcast editing on on yourself as opposed to outsourcing it that could be a cost cutting but i would be really careful that you don't shoot yourself in the foot while you're trying to cut costs. Right. It's like, I like the garden meta gardening metaphor for marketing and it works here too, where it's like, if you're going to stop doing some activity, don't let it be watering the garden. If you're planning on eating tomatoes in six months. Right. So like, like look for stuff that, I mean, when, when COVID first hit, I remember, I mean, nobody knew what was going to happen. That was like such a, such a, curveball mm -hmm. and i did exactly what you just said where it was like i looked at my expenses i said okay what what here is really a luxury that's not not even a luxury like let me just look at my statement and like what are all the things that i'm spending money on especially on a monthly basis and which ones are don't i cannot draw any reasonable uh i can't make any reasonable conclusion about how they do or might in the future drive sales uh, or awareness or whatever. And I easily cut, cut at least $2,500 out of my monthly burn mm -hmm. just by looking at stuff like, Oh, I forgot. I, I forgot I was paying for this. You know, there was, there was probably at least five to 800,000, 800,000, eight, five to maybe 800 bucks a month of stuff I forgot I was paying for. 
So if nothing else, I mean, that'd be a good thing to do periodically, but that's certainly one thing to do. Uh, but I, I do uh, I do second the motion to think long and hard about about stopping marketing activities, like maybe decrease the cost, maybe do them in some, like you suggested, you know, edit your own podcast or just do YouTube lives and use that as your audio. So there is no editing at all, or, you know, be clever in, 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 in cutting the cost. But, uh, but that's probably a starting point, but that is not, this is not why we have you here, Erica, because <laughs> the, the real point, I think the exciting, the much more exciting thing than, you know, belt tightening is not fun. The much more exciting thing is that one of the advantages of running your own show is that you have a massive amount of flexibility. You can do, you can do anything pretty much. So and one of those things could be to innovate, come up with with new ways to be more profitable or just raise your prices or get rid of unprofitable clients. Or So what are some of the things that, that people can do to not just cut costs, but increase the top line instead of just decreasing the, the, the costs? Right. So I think regardless of what the economy is doing, I think to get in a normal cadence, if you're offering a standard service, not necessarily a project value price, but if you're offering a productized service and you have a standard rate for that, get in the cadence, regardless of the economy of every year, adjusting that rate so that you're tracking with inflation. So we don't get to a point like we are today and you're like, oh shoot, I should have done that five years ago. And now I got to up my prices 20%. Like it's much harder to up your choices 20 price is 20% than it is to up them 3% every year to track inflation. And so you won't find your, you know, just getting in that normal cadence is a good practice. And then it also won't feel as bad when we get to a situation like this and you're like, wow, inflation was 7% last year. I should make that price increase probably closer to 10% this year. And since my customers are, I'm used to doing this, it doesn't it doesn't shock me so much. You know, so often our price increases shock us way more than anybody looking at them. And and so just to get in that normal cadence is just a good rhythm for what you're already doing. Hmm. Yes, absolutely agree. I, I'll take it even a step farther and say, especially in the early days of of when you have created a, a newer productized service. So you know, and to define the term, it's a fixed scope service that you offer at a published price. That's like my working definition. Mm -hmm. And when you first create one, let's say it's a thousand, just for round numbers, let's say it's a thousand dollars and you immediately sell it. Well, I would say immediately raise the price to 1750 or, you know, and you sell another one you're like, geez, uh, maybe I should raise it to 2,500. So, so in the, when you're still probing the market to find out, where the price sets sensitivity starts, then I think raising the price a lot often in the beginning is a good idea. And that can be shocking to people because they're like, they think of, they think of a price as like a, a one and done, set it and forget it kind of thing. Like the price for this is a thousand dollars. And then that's that. And then, and maybe they'll do like you suggested and, you know, potentially raise it uh, based on inflation, you know, just raise it a little bit every year. Uh, but to me, I, that, that's like, that's just uh, the basics, right? And not right. A, people aren't even doing that. I think when you first, the problem, the problem with productized services, the, the downside of using productized services that is that they can leave money on the table. In fact, you, they almost definitely are leaving some money on the table. You just don't want it to be a lot of money on the table. So early in the life of the productized service, if you 
test the market by increasing the price quite a bit. And then, hey, guess what? You can lower your price too. Like no one's gonna sue you. So if you raise it too high and all of a sudden sales fall off a cliff, then you know you've found an edge. You found the edge where the people that you are attracting and are aware of this thing stopped seeing enough value in it for this $25,000 to make sense or whatever the number is. And then back it down, that's fine. Uh, but generally speaking, with productized services, I see folks pricing them too low and and leaving them too low for way too long to the you know to the point where raising them for inflation every year still wouldn't even catch up to the value that they're actually creating. Anyway, so in your email, you said something about uh, you really you gave three options: cut costs. We talked about that. Razor prices. We just talked about that, and then get more customers. Let's talk about that. What does that look like for um, a soloist in a tough economy? for getting more customers. It probably looks the same as any economy. It's just a matter of what you're selling and what people need. Um, I don't think necessarily your tactics change in a recession or as the economy wavers. The economy is always wavering up or down. And um, if what you are selling is valuable to your buyer in 2022, my guess is that it is still valuable to your buyer in 2023. If you ran a newspaper in 2022, you're still, you were doing bad in 2022 and you're going to do bad in 2023. <laughs> you know, if you're doing software development in 2022, and I would guess it was doing well, you're probably still going to be doing well in 2023. Now, depending who your customer is, they might have budget constraints. Um, and you have to, you have to be aware of that. But I think if tactically, However, you were getting customers or not getting customers in 2022 applies to 2023. And so I think just going after what worked for you in the past, I don't, I don't think a recession is a is a lever pull of like, now you have to start doing something totally different. Like I think that's the knee-jerk reaction of like, ah, I have to change something. You might very well not. It might just be like doubling down on what was already working for you and finding more of that ideal buyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that advice looks like continue to do whatever marketing it is that you've been doing. Cause it just doesn't, cause like you said, the value doesn't disappear overnight. It's like the problem is everyone's clenching, right? With, with the exceptions of industries that get annihilated, which does happen, but mm -hmm. it's pretty rare. And it's also pretty rare at least for people in my audience to be all in on one industry or even sector. So if you're running a firm that's got some history to it, you've been around for a little while, you probably have folks from all sorts of different industries in your past. And like Eric is saying, you can go think back and like, oh, who, who did I do? Who did I, what project was a huge success? Who did I really like working for? Who did I like really enjoy and scare up new business with old clients or double down on a space from your past where you think that they're going to be relatively insulated from uh, from a belt tightening or a, a clenching of the, you know a recession in the economy. So, for example, when COVID happened, it, you know it's not a recession, but it's like this big event that caused everyone to like panic. If you had past clients that were in the airline space, but also in telecom, well probably go after the telecom ones, you know, reach back out to your past telecom clients or, you know, any kind of remote work type of software or, or clientele and say, Hey, you know, it, it's been a long time. I've got some openings in my schedule or whatever. And, you know, like start a new conversation with them and see if you can scare up new work that way. Uh, or just go straight into, 
whatever outreach or marketing tech marketing activities that you're undertaking in that direction and kind of explore that space, make connections in that space, have conversations in that space that you think will be more resistant, you know, of all the kinds of industries that you've worked in in the past, which one would be the most resistant in this situation and uh, see if you can see if you can land some new clients there. Yeah. I also think in, in big recession, and obviously we've seen a lot of layoffs in fortune 500 companies and just big name companies in general. I think being aware that those types of companies having been in inside on the inside, they tighten, they tighten hard and they tighten fast. And so if your big, if your main ideal buyer is a fortune 500 company, and that's who you're going after, I think being aware that the natural reaction of those companies is to cut. And I mean, it's called a, a spending freeze. They'll put in, in place a spending freeze and you as the vendor now can't get anything in like the door is shut. The, the, the moat, you know, the moat bridge has yeah, been drawn. The drawn bridge is up. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. All right. So what, I mean, what are you seeing with, um, I mean, to be, I, I'm like curious what you're, what you're seeing on the ground with like your clients and businesses that you serve. Who, is there any, anyone out there who you think is getting annihilated or is really feeling it like much more strongly, you know, like, like you said, like fortune, fortune 500s, big corporations, they're going to immediately to appease their really public companies are going to want to appease their stockholders. And the quick way to do that is to cut costs. And it's like, oh, our, our, our numbers look better that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's, it might be short-term thinking, but it is what they do. Like, are there other sectors or industries that you've seen, like are, are really uh, already being heavily impacted? So I think with, well, one, me personally, I'm seeing, like I made fun of earlier, seeing people cut back on marketing. So if you are a marketing or your sales gen um, company or consultant, people's knee-jerk reaction is to, quote, cut the fluff. I would never call marketing or sales gen fluff, but other people still do see that. And so I think that is always on the chopping block, um, whether that's right or wrong. I've seen that be affected. And then with any recession or any contraction of the market, you're always going to see, from a macroeconomic standpoint, discretionary spend like anything extra that people in general spend on, whether that just be stuff and things, as my husband say, everybody loves to buy stuff and things. And so in the retail space, you're going to, you're going to see that pullback travel. I would anticipate you see pullback because just people are in, as you go into recession, people are going to have less money to spend and they are not going to stop spending money on their groceries and all the things that they have to spend, but they will stop spending on stuff and things and travel yeah going to disney or whatever yeah so when there's a a big sort of global event uh, whether it's whether it's propped up or not by the media if people are if lots of people in your audience uh, your your client base are thinking about something like a recession or COVID or whatever i see it as a perfect time to think about innovating in your products and services so like so like Everybody's going along, status quo, and then boom, asteroid event. Now everyone's thinking about something different or they're thinking about the same things in a very different way. For me, as a soloist, it's like the perfect time. It's That's the perfect time for you to shine because you don't have a massive amount of organizational inertia pushing you in the direction that you've been going. You can you know, turn on a dime, so to speak, and 
release like if, if you see an immediate new need that's been created or a new desire that's been created by the threat of a recession let's say then it's a perfect time to say like oh you know what i'm gonna like stay up late tonight and design a new productized service that speaks specifically to the kinds of concerns that i'm seeing in my audience around this topic let's say and it, it's like it's a great kick in the pants in my opinion to create a new product or service some kind of new offering that speaks to this new desire and you know maybe it'll be a long-term thing maybe it'll be a short-term thing but it is what it is where a soloist really can shine because they don't have a committee that they need to get something approved by you can just make a new sales page in one night and announce it to your mailing list or your podcast audience or on social media the next day and say hey is anybody worried about like I don't know how to cut their uh, subscription, their credit card subscription payments in half because you know belts are tightening or whatever, or you're 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 afraid that your clients are going to disappear overnight. Like, here's the thing that can help with that. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's a, that's not really a question, but but I see that I see stuff like this as an opportunity to potentially not just raise your prices or get more customers, but create a new product or service. And then reach back out to past customers and say, hey, I've got this new product or service uh, that I think might be a great fit for you. Would you like to jump on the phone or, you know, do you want to review the page and let me know if you have any questions or whatever? Yeah. But now, now's a perfect time to do something like that. I think we also, if we can take COVID and the great resignation from, you know, if we can learn anything from that, I think what we saw was, and I still don't know if we have solid solid response to this, but like everybody left, not everybody, a huge chunk left the workforce and then they didn't come back. Like we're still not sure where they went. Did they all start businesses? Did they all go solo? Did they all decide, well, if I'm going to be home anyways, I might as well do my own thing. And so I think, I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that. And because I have clients who got laid off two years ago, who now their businesses are really starting to take off and they're bringing me in to help them with that. And so I don't think it's, it's untrue to think that you, that if you serve a B2B service, I don't think it's untrue to say that you could have the potential if there's layoffs coming, that you just have a new pool of potential buyers just from people starting their own things and they need, they need somebody to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great example speaking for myself, like all these new freelancers, like that, who I wouldn't normally tailor a message directly to, but could, it's like a clear, uh, overlap and sit, you know, and just do like a boatload of YouTube videos or Instagram stuff. I don't really do Instagram, but like that kind of thing where I talk about like, Oh, you know, just started freelancing. Don't bill by the hour. <laughs> start start out not billing by the hour, like so you don't have to unlearn those those skills that that habit later. Uh, but 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 yeah, I mean it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, where it's like okay, things are happening, um, whether it's whether it's propped up by the media trying to get clicks or not, doesn't really matter. If people are worried about it, then they're going to make decisions based on that. Some number of them will. So it makes it real in a sense, and then it's like, okay, is there an opportunity here to serve a, in your example, to serve a new market, a fresh brand new crop of, of work from home solopreneurs could be, could be a great year for you, right? Like if, if that giant influx into that market 
is something that you can serve, then yeah, it could be your best year ever, right? Absolutely. And I think if you, you had said, if you, if you realize, you know, there's something there, I think if you look at where you have been and you realize there isn't anything there, it's, it's not affecting you. Maybe you serve, I'm trying to think of an industry that would, maybe you serve a tech industry that's middle market. So they don't have a whole bunch of overhead that they have to, sorry, I just cut out there. Maybe you look at it and you go, well, this, this isn't affecting me at all. Like, don't make it a thing though. Then don't spend any more time thinking about it. Just move on your merry way and live your life and do your business and, you know, pat yourself on the back for being in an industry that in this particular time isn't being affected. Mm. Yeah, that was, uh, there were tons of, I know tons of people who had their best years ever during COVID because they always worked remotely and, and so did their clients. And it just was, it was a, from a business standpoint, it was a non-issue. I mean, obviously people had health concerns and all of the social stuff that was all, all true and real. Uh, But I I know tons of people who were like, yeah, this is not affecting my business. Um, So, right. So just not buying into the, the doom scrolling on Twitter uh, just for your psychology, it's it's just like okay, you know, it. I, I I've actually looked at the numbers. I've gone beyond the headlines and looked at my books and my and my and talked to my clients. And like, just so happens we're one of the maybe lucky few where everything's fine and I don't need to worry about it. And I don't need to take, for example, I don't need to cut my marketing budget, right? Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't. There's no reason to. There's no like like this thing is happening, but it's going to be unevenly distributed. The effects of it will be unevenly distributed. So yeah, making knee-jerk reactions about like, oh geez, I need to go into lockdown mode when perhaps the the, the reality doesn't support that decision. I mean, that's that's good evergreen advice, right? Like make data-based mm-hmm. decisions, not just like knee-jerk reactions to the news cycle, the current news cycle. Yeah, it's all it's all a belief and a mindset. So I have clients who are coaches and sometimes we talk mindset. Obviously, that's what they do in their business sometimes. And I think whatever you build that that belief on, like you can believe this is a bad thing, or you can believe this is a good, like you, whatever you believe will be true. And I remember sitting on the couch with my laptop on my lap next to my husband in April of 2020, looking at the 30% haircut in our investments and us both looking at it, both accountants and being like, well, that, well, that really sucks. You know, like, okay, that happened. Now what do we do? And we looked at each other and we said, buy airline stock. Sounds good. Because everything right? was on. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, fantastic. Let's buy all the airline stock right now because it's all on clearance. Right. And and so, and that served us very well in the past two years. And so it's all just, you know, it happens. And then you just ask yourself what your next step is. Mm. Yeah. I've been saying this on other shows, but there's a line from, from Game of Thrones where Littlefinger says chaos is a ladder. And you know, he's talking to someone who's like, oh, you know, we don't want this crazy, awful, bad thing to happen. And he's like, I do. Essentially, what he's saying is I want that to happen because I'm on the I'm not I'm not happy right now. I'm farther down than I'd like to be. And so when when the status quo is kind of thrown up in the air, it's an opportunity for you to jump way up from where you currently are. The, never. It doesn't. It takes a rare individual to like look at it like that or certainly to be excited about it. It's there. It's just like you said. It's just like we could sit here on the couch and lament that our numbers are down, or it could be like the numbers are down, right? And like look at it as an opportunity to, if you have the wherewithal, to like buy stocks on sale that are almost surely 
going to bounce back unless you know people right. stop flying so that's a i mean that's a great example of of like of being kind of what's the word kind of like unemotional or rational about the facts like that happened what is that where's is there an opportunity here right like is there and it's kind of what you were saying about uh, the potential new workforce of like remote work from home people like that are self-employed like is there is there an opportunity there or do you you know as a someone who runs a wendy's or something do you just lament the fact that you can't get people to staff the drive through window or whatever it is all okay. right so from a i feel like i feel like a lot of this is sort of like general business advice what is there are there things like as a cpa specifically what would something like inflation or a recession trigger in you professionally to proactively reach out to your clients and and maybe advise them about specifically around like the numbers and the books and anything like that well the first place my my mind went was super technical and harvest your tax losses if you haven't i don't know when this will air if it'll air before the 31st but um but harvest your tax losses what does that mean that that means if so you don't pay tax if you have an investment account i'm not talking about your retirement i'm talking if you have um non-retirement money in fidelity or merrill or vanguard whatever you do and you're investing in mutual funds you don't pay tax on the gains or losses on that until you actually sell it and so when you sell it at a loss you get to up to a certain limit there's limits on everything you can take the deduction of the loss on your taxes. And so if you're looking to save money on your taxes and you have some unclaimed loss because it's just, you know, you've let it ride up and down um, all year. And so that's what, you know, personally, that's what I've done. And I don't get into people's investments um, too much in my line of work, but I have, you know, recommended that if you talk to your financial planner, if you have and good financial planners should already be doing this for you. But if you do your own um, investments, if you have losses sitting out there that you haven't sold, um, you just want to sell those, you can capture some of the loss and then you could take that loss on your tax return and save, you know, a thousand bucks on your taxes this year. And who doesn't like saving a thousand bucks this year when you might be going into a dip? Interesting. Okay. So let's get nerdy about this because that I want to make sure I understand this because I am like, I'm all thumbs when it comes to any of that stuff. Now, if I, so let's say, let's say, and I know this, obviously this can't be actual advice. I'm just curious, like for entertainment purposes only. Sure. Let's say I had $10,000 in some mutual fund or whatever. I don't know. And it's, sorry, it's down $10,000 and I sell it now. I would, what does that actually gain me? Because I am, if, because the, what's the alternative is I could leave it. And it could bounce back like crazy, right? Like I could just let it ride. But what you're saying, right. is, what you're saying is harvesting it means that you're you're afraid of a cash flow crunch, and you want to maximize your liquidity. Yeah. So it's all timing. I mean, it's you're you're gonna likely close to even out in the lifetime of your of your tax your tax life, right? Over the course of years. But if today you're worried about cash and you're like, gosh, how can I save on my taxes? There's a lot of times I talk to business owners who get to December and go, do I need to spend a whole bunch of money so I can save on my taxes? 
we please don't go do that. You don't spend a dollar to save 30 cents, right? Yeah, I never um, understood. <laughs> Thank you. That's a <laughs> perfect way to put it. Like, yes. oh, like, oh, you can write that off. It's like, I still had to spend the dollar. Yes. Right? At the end of the day, you're down 70 cents. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, you got a discount on the the car for work. Right. Right. And so in this case, if you really are worried about a cash crunch and you're, you're trying to like save as much on your taxes as you can, um, you would take that $10,000 dip in your mutual, your hypothetical mutual fund and you would sell, you could sell all of it. You could sell, I don't quote me, I think it's a $3,000 cap on losses you mm -hmm. can take. So you could, if you sold the portion that captured a $3,000 loss, mm -hmm. you would then be able to save that money um, on your taxes this year. Now, don't sit that you sell it and you take out, say you take $10,000 out of the market. Don't let it sit there. Like go put it in a different investment. Yeah. Bitcoin, obviously. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. Sorry. Oh, that's another episode, right? Yeah, exactly. So essentially what you're saying is there's a spot on my tax return where it's going to say, how much money did you lose in investments last year? And I could say $3,000 and they'll say, and that mm -hmm. will reduce my tax burden by a thousand ish yeah okay i mean using general percentages but yeah okay that's that's super interesting so okay you mentioned cash flow i, I don't know how I, I don't feel like this normally would fall under a cpa's um, domain but maybe in your work with clients you talk about cash flow so like like what it feels to me like it's an under discussed topic I feel like it's the kind of thing that people like business owners run their entire business based on their cash flow. A lot of them, especially soloists, run their whole business based on cash flow without thinking about it, which is why they almost never even think about the concept of profit because they conflate their revenue with their or their salary with their profit. So there's like a lot of weird psychology stuff going on, especially for soloists around like whose money is this? Cause it's all mine. Um, but you're actually, you've got two or three different hats that you're wearing as the business owner and the employee, perhaps even maybe something else in addition. So when it comes to cash flow, is it just as simple as saying like, like, uh, what what are the things that someone should think about when they're thinking about their cash flow? I guess that's the question. Yeah. So when we when I meet with my clients and I you're right, I would not be I, I even fear telling people I'm a CPA because then everybody just assumes, oh, you just do taxes, which CPAs can do lots of things. It's just culture believes that CPAs only do taxes. Um, and so my unique spin on the CPA license is that I meet with my clients on a monthly basis. And so we're not a once a year relationship. We're a constant emailing back and forth during the month and meeting on a monthly basis. And when we meet, we are looking back at the past for a small fraction of the time. And we're saying, what happened last month? Is your accounting correct? Because we care that your accounting in the past is correct from a tax standpoint, because if your bookkeeping's bad, your taxes are wrong. And so we do that for a very small fraction of time. The rest of the time we spend spelling out what's going to happen to your business in the future, which in the end, what we're looking at at the bottom line is what your cash is, is doing. Because the biggest hurdle we see from newer business owners, newer coaches and consultants is one month they realize they're going to run out of cash. <laughs> not, not on purpose, not because they run a bad business, but because like, oops, 
especially with coaching and consulting where the revenue tends to be a roller coaster, like right. some months are $60,000 months, some months are zero, zero months right. for, you know, 60,000 one month, zero for the next two. And in month one, you thought, oh, great, that's fantastic. I took $50,000 of cash out of the business. And then you realize your quarterly taxes are due for 15,000 and your bank account is negative now, right? And so what we're trying to avoid is always that negative. And what I, my goal for my clients is to build up a cash reserve equal to three to six months of their expenses so that if we hit a recession period or we hit a bad sales um, you know, period, or God forbid you get a bad diagnosis or a loved one get a bad diagnosis and you just have to stop working, we've built up that cash reserve so that you can continue to pay yourself as a business owner without actually doing any work for three to six months. Okay. So that's classic good advice. Uh, mm -hmm. How, how, but that's kind of like saying like, you like how to get washboard abs, eat a thousand calories a day and then spend six hours in the gym. It's like, no kidding. Like, right. So like how, how involved do you get with, it's like the thing we, it's the thing we all know we should be doing, but not enough people do. So how in your coaching or like when you, whatever you call mm -hmm. it, when these like monthly meetings, how into the weeds do you get with people about making that really happen? Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. how, how do you, if, if you do, how do you help them stick to that idea? Or like, could you give the listener maybe some tips and tricks uh, about like how to kind of gamify that or fake yourself into doing it? Or, you know, Mike McCallowitz profit first, like take <laughs> every, every dollar you get, put 10 cents over here. And like, what do you, what is your kind of, um, party line on that? Yeah. So, um, first accountability is a beautiful thing. Just have it just like we all do better at the gym when we hire a personal trainer because they're going to meet us there. And if we don't show up, they're going to know we didn't show up and they're going to call us. Um, having somebody looking at your money with you is, a it's almost like a magic bullet of somebody's holding you accountable, first of all. So in this case, that would be you. So like, you, yeah. Okay. So just, I mean, for my clients, it is, yeah. Just yeah. being there is, <laughs> is kind of the feet to the fire. Um, but then like tactically, we're building out what are, if you're in a situation, my clients go through launches where they'll launch a product or a service and, you know, how much are you going to have to sell? How much do you plan to sell of that? What's the rate on that? And like, what is that revenue going to be? Then we build out all of the expenses. And though I love Mike Michalowicz dearly, I do not Pay, like my clients do not pay themselves as a percentage of their profit. They're paying themselves. We find the right dollar amount. They need to pay themselves every month so that their cash is growing in their business and that they can still predict on the family side of their life, what income they're going to be getting in every month. Mm, okay. This is getting really interesting. So, so let me make sure that I'm understanding you are making a distinction between the well, first of all, we're talking about someone with no employees, probably, right? Yeah. Or, it could be employees or not, but yeah. Okay. Usually so, but, mine have like zero to two employees, maybe. Right. It's pretty small, right? In terms of headcount. And and what you're just, I think what you just said, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you want to find the right salary number for the person so that their, uh, whatever their life stuff is, their regular person expenses are, are covered comfortably. But mm -hmm. that doesn't take too much money out of the business for 
uh, rainy day fund, so on and so on and so on, marketing, all of the other business expenses. Is that so far? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So have you, I'm curious if you have found that folks, especially sole props or LLC types, I think probably especially LLCs, you probably don't work with too many sole props, just draw no distinction between their revenue, the business revenue and their income or their, their, their salary, their pay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think until somebody shows it to you spelled out in a profit and loss statement by month, it's really hard to see that. And some, some of us are savvy enough that we're doing that on a monthly basis and we're coming up with how much we should pay ourselves. But I think there's, the more I see, the more I realize that it is a, it's a bit of a scramble when people are looking at all their numbers and nobody knows how to figure out what the quote right amount to pay themselves is per month. Yeah. So this, it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to under to really internalize the difference between me as the business owner and me as the employee the sole employee and and that it's not as simple as like all this money is mine you know like just putting it all Mm -hmm. i didn't put it all in one checking account but i might as well have for the first bunch of years because i knew i couldn't because i'm i was set up as an s corp and you pretty much can't do that uh or whatever I, i don't know that much about it i just did what they told me but the the with LLCs, it all just passes through, which I would terrifies me, frankly, from a psychology standpoint. So I guess the question is, how would how do you work through? Okay, I, there's two questions here. The first one is, how do you? What are the things that you think about when you're deciding how to how much your client should pay themselves in salary? That's one question. And then this, mm-hmm. the other question is, for something like an S corp. When you keep profits in the business, like what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like when when all of the money doesn't go to you and it's sitting there, what are the things that that people should be thinking about with that money? I, I, mean, I can't even articulate the question very well. It, but it, it's what I'm talking. What I'm trying to tease apart is the difference between the business as an entity and the let's say sole individual as an entity. And what are the considerations, let's just say for an S corp, because you can't, you have to do something with the profits at the end of the year, which is when they're like, oh, do you need to buy a truck conversation starts to happen. So like, what, how do you think through that? Or how, how should someone understand that if they're just clueless about their books? Yeah. So when we talk about LLCs and an S corp, so if you're just to draw the distinction, if you're an S corp, you are still an LLC you are still a legal entity. And then if you're an LLC, you can elect to be an S-corp and that changes how you pay yourself, but it doesn't change how you have to, what you have to do with the money that sits in the business. So your profit, like they're, they're both passing through to you. So whether, and I get this question a lot, like, when do I pay taxes? Like I didn't take any money out of the business this year. I didn't even pay myself. So do I have to pay taxes? <laughs> right. And so there's that's a good one. Yeah. That, that totally crystallizes it. That's a great one. Yeah. And so people think I didn't, I have clients who it was kind of a side thing. So they literally didn't need to pay themselves. And they're like, well, I didn't touch any of the money in the business checking account. So I don't have to pay taxes on it. Right. Which is about, unless you, unless you know, you don't know. And 
So what's true of it is whether the money comes out of the business or stays in the business, you're paying taxes on it. And so whether you're an LLC or an S corp, that's true. And that's why we always try to like for my clients, always try to keep some money in the business to build that cash reserve. That doesn't change how much taxes you're paying on it. Okay. So let's, this is so cool. So, and and I know we're kind of off topic from the original point, but this is super interesting. (laughs) You know, this is not recession specific, I suppose, except for like the having cash reserves. I guess it does relate. So correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding was that it, my designation is S-Corp, but at, as you rightly pointed out, and I always forget, it's a, just a, it's a sub, sub chapter S, right? Yeah. Of yeah. the LLC rules. So uh, my understanding is that you can't leave any money in the business at the end of the year. Is that misconception or is am I just misconception? Okay, so when so but when people tell me that, I think what they're saying is you can't leave any money in the business at the end of the year if you don't want to pay taxes on it, or some some they're 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 not explaining themselves clearly when they tell me that. So it doesn't matter where the money sits. The IRS doesn't know where the money is sitting. What they know is what your profit and loss statement says. That's what you're going to pay tax on. So whether you your books are clean as a whistle and you have one bank account and it's a business one and it's super tidy, or you are a disaster and you're, you've got like things in personal checking accounts and personal savings accounts and a business checking, it doesn't matter where it is. Like what matters to the IRS at the end of the day is what your profit and loss statement says. Mm-hmm. And so whether you paid all of yourself, you know, you paid yourself money all of the money out of your check, your business checking account, or you left it all sitting in there, you're paying the same um, tax taxes on it. I actually had a woman, this is a scary, funny story. I had a woman who said, well, I'm operating at a loss this year and I pay myself X hundred dollars a month and I have credit card debt in my business. And I'm trying to, yeah, yeah. I, the listener can't see you also tilted your head when I said that. Because when she said that to me, I went, oh, and it made sense to me. I said, oh, you're paying your salary with credit card debt. And she went, no, I'm not. It's out of my business. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Talk about faking yourself out. Yeah, yes. And it wasn't until we spelled it out and we and we looked at it from like a profit and loss to cash flow standpoint oh that God. her eyes got wide and she was like, oh, Ugh. OK, yeah. that's so. terrifying. Um, uh, all right. So, OK, so it, I, I know I used the checking account example. I understand it doesn't matter where the money actually sits. They're just going to say like, OK, how much money came into this EIN or in my case? And how much did this EIN, how much did this business's social security number take in? And how much did this business social security number spend or how much went out? And right. what's the difference? And 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 you want, as the business owner, if you're trying to minimize your tax burden, you want that number to be as close to zero or lower as possible from a tax standpoint, right? So Yes. Right, but the I'm, more taxes you pay means you're making more profit. Right, right, exactly. Right, so like, so like, from a tax burden standpoint, it's like, well, I don't want to pay any taxes. It's like, okay, well, don't make any money. <laughs> done, done. Precisely. <laughs> so that's easy. But I want to actually eat too. I need to keep Cheerios in the bowl. 
so it's so crazy. This is so crazy. It should be so simple. How come this isn't simple? Like, just <laughs> give it to me the simple way. Give it to me the simple way, right? Like, like I don't care about gaming the system. I don't care about any of that. I just, I, I bring in, I have clients who pay me $100,000 a year reliably. And when they, when one of them goes away, a new one fills in. And so I've got this income of $100,000 a year, uh, sorry, revenue of $100,000 a year. And my only cost is my salary. Mm -hmm. Like what's the, what's, doesn't that look like, where am I wrong here? That, that looks like, okay, all of this $100,000 is going to be like a couple of whatever gas, electricity, whatever, like teeny little meaningless expenses, but you had to buy a computer or whatever. With $100,000 is revenue, you minus maybe $1,000 or $5,000 in costs, business costs, and you end up with $95,000 that you just pay yourself and you can, yep. live, on, and you can live on that. Well, off that $95,000, if you're an LLC and you're paying self-employment tax, you're probably looking at a 40% tax rate. Mm -hmm. So of that $95,000, set aside, pay it to the IRS, 40% of that, and you get to keep the other, what, 50,000? Right, basically. Yeah. So so if you just want to keep your life simple, you just um, submit isn't the word I want to use, but you just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be in a 40% tax bracket or whatever your tax bracket is, and you don't game the system, you don't try and look for, you know, uh, you don't try to harvest your losses or anything like that, and you just play the play it dumb, play the game dumb. And you're like, okay, you know, my revenue basically passes through almost a hundred percent of it passes through to me, the only employee. And I just pay my personal taxes based on the business has no profit because it all goes to salary. And so wait, 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 wait. Uh, I, just, I don't want any, the listener to be confused. So you don't have in an LLC with a hundred thousand dollars of say $95,000 of revenue, mm -hmm. there is no salary line item. There's just profit. Oh my God. So, so you're, cause you're right. So in my situation, I have like payroll company and all of that stuff, yes. even though it's just So me. as an S corp, that's what changes as an S corp, you have salary and profit as a not S corp, just an LLC. You don't have salary. You, you just have profit and that's what you're paying off of. All right. And that, how, how does that, this is turning into a consultation. <laughs> <laughs> this is the subject. Okay, let's just. To this is good. No, there. but this is this is a question that so many people have. So I imagine everybody's getting something out of this if they're All listening. Right. Okay, so the LLC thing. I I remember part of the reason I decided not to be an LLC is that I knew that it was going to confuse me horribly, and I liked the additional structure and call it friction or annoyance or and fees of being forced to have essentially forced to have treat myself as an employee. I knew that that was going to be really good for my psychology. Mm -hmm. So I can't even get my head around what people with an L a sole, like a single partner LLC. I don't even understand what you say, what you mean when you say there's no salary, there's just profit. It's like, it's like, what, what are you saying? Like you don't, in other words, you know, Alice is a single partner LLC brought in a hundred thousand dollars and had like minimal expenses, like five grand. And so there's this 90 foot, let's just say it round, you know, it's 105. She spent five. So she got a hundred K mm -hmm. of profit, right? Cause you're right. That's profit on the P and L that would be profit. And she, her doesn't, so, she, so the only money that she's allowed to spend on Christmas presents or whatever is business profit. 
So like Correct. she, so it's like a hundred percent, it's kind of like a hundred percent distribution. Yeah. Well, yes. Correct. Okay. So here's, here's what happens is here's what can happen, especially somebody whose business is really taken off and they didn't realize what it was going to do to their taxes. Mm-hmm. They had a hundred thousand dollars of profit. They went great, took their hundred thousand dollars, went on a huge trip, spent it all, mm-hmm. bought their groceries. Then they do their taxes and they get their $40,000 tax bill. Right. And now they're in debt to the IRS right? because they don't have that money left over. They spent their $100,000 and now they're sitting on a $40,000 bill. And so what happens is usually after that first year of like, holy cow, I did that wrong, is then we start looking at cash flow planning to say, okay, this quarter you made $25,000. Immediately, let's set aside 40% of that. What is that? You know? Sure. But the the I think the the thing that's got me hung up is more like the forty thousand dollar debt is the business the LLC owes. No, that's a person. So I guess the thing that's that's kind of uh, the thing that's changing in my mind that I'm just so so many years of getting a W two from myself or my own business is that I can't even get my head around how crazy that sounds. <laughs> Right. And that's where the the cash flow planning of guessing how much money to pay yourself because you're not getting a W-2. Uh-huh. You have to, you know, in essence, guess the correct amount so that you're not that you're not nose diving your bank account right. by the time you pay yourself and the IRS and your expenses. And so that's where where we talk about cash flow planning. Back to your question, you know, 10 yeah. minutes ago, mm-hmm. the cash flow planning is really spelling that out of okay, in the next 12 months. Here's what your revenue is going to be. Here's what we know your expenses are going to be because they're probably very small as a coach or a consultant. Right. Um, and, but you're going to have some ebbs and flows in your revenue. And so if we guess that we can pay you $3,000 a month and pay the IRS every quarter $4,000, what I'm making up numbers, you know, is that put you in an okay place or are you out of cash in a certain month? Right. And then it's like, okay, we can't pay you $3,000. We got to pay you $2,000. Okay, we're paying you $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Do you find that it's important for that for it to be monthly and for it to be a, basically the same amount? I personally like that. My clients tend to like it. They tend to be people who have come out of corporate and they're used to a regular cadence of a payroll. Li- like, living on a limited, yeah. like a specific limited amount. Yeah. Otherwise, you're doing the same exact thing in your personal life. You either do it in your business or your personal life. You've got to neutralize one of them. <laughs> right. So it's this is like endlessly fascinating. The I think the I think to me, just like if like the listeners just a fly on the wall at this point, the the thing about the S corp and the necessity of payroll and all of the sort of hoops, this is sort of like silly hoops you have to jump through. There's not that many, honestly. My lawyer does all of it, but I have to pay him. And and the and the payroll company is just like on autopilot. It's it's not like a big deal. It's a very tiny deal, but it is a deal. To me, that is like drastically worth it because of how scary and important the like the it forces me. To, it, it's like I can't not I can't skip the cash flow planning part because I have to set up the payroll to be something right. right. Like I had to in the in the the advice I got was that you you know and to continue to benefit from the limited liability i needed to pay myself a reasonable salary for the job that i do whatever that means 
Right. So there's a certain minute, like I can't just pay myself a dollar and then take the rest of it in distributions. But like the fact that you're telling me that's basically what an LLC is, is like, so <laughs> it's terrifying. Like, I don't know why anyone, why does anyone do that? Because they don't have the cash starting out to be an S corp and it doesn't make tax sense for them to be an S corp. So there's, there's a point where, I mean, not all of my clients are escorts because it doesn't make sense for them to be escorts. No, I know tons of people that are just like LLCs and they love it. Yeah. But I, I'm like, wow, I, I made the right decision 10 or 15 years ago when I made this decision because it seems very scary to me. I think it matters how you get into your business. If like me, I started, you know, a grassroots from very, from nothing and I built it up slowly versus, and that you, you don't. You wouldn't S corp something like that. Whereas if you're coming out of corporate and you know you're going to have a hundred thousand dollars of revenue and you know you're going to have clients right off the bat and you're not worried about that, then I would, rec you know, for the right person, recommend like, yeah, S corp makes sense for you. Yeah, that's what that was me. I already right. knew, right? I went, yeah, I already knew I was gonna. I had like clients already, so you're right. I wasn't a side hustle. It was never a side hustle. It was always the only thing. Interesting. Okay. So, and, and we actually, I think we even talked about on, on the other show, when you joined us on the business of authority, I think we talked about the thought process that might make you go from sole prop to LLC to perhaps S corp. It, it, you even talked about C corps, I think, which is like f pretty much for sure over the top, but um, just, think, yeah. just for logical completeness, it did make sense to discuss. Um, okay. So if we, if we, <laughs> if we bring it back to the subject here, uh, inflation is alive and well, costs are up and so forth. Do you have sort of parting words to leave the listener with in terms of how should they should be thinking about specifically the money aspects of their business? Yeah, I think actually the whole discussion we just had that we thought was not part of the recession discussion <laughs> is really is really part of it because the point is, I think if you have a plan and you know what your cash flow looks like, and you can adjust that plan based on what's happening, you don't have a reason to fear. And as we look at all the headlines, if we choose to, I, you're welcome to choose to not look at headlines, right? Um, there is a difference between being afraid and being aware. And if you are aware of what's about to happen in your business, you don't have to be afraid because you are the controller of your destiny to some point, especially with your cash flow. Brilliant. Boy, you did tie that up with a nice bow at the end there. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me. I, I, I feel like I should, I feel like I got a free consultation. I feel like I owe you money after this. So where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, if you like to read, you can get on my newsletter. And if you like to listen, I have a podcast called Coaches, Consultants, and Money, where we talk about all of this. Fabulous. Highly recommend the mailing list. And I'm going to subscribe to the podcast right now. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and you've been listening to Ditching Hourly. See you next time. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.